0: on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Kyle Ridgway. Now please check out part one on iTunes if you haven't heard it yet as Kyle provides a great insight in that part one. But as for part two, Kyle discusses how to get patient family buy-in and assess understanding in the hospital which patient populations that he has found to be the most difficult to teach, and how he has overcome these difficulties, what he has learned from other healthcare providers that PT should embrace, the do's and don'ts with discussing patient status with another healthcare provider, and much more. Now, without further ado, we present part two with Dr. Kyle Ridgway.
1: Yeah, Kyle, you just gave us an expansive shopping list of things that we have to think about if we're going to start educating in the ICU setting what are some of the most effective strategies that you have found to properly teach patients or families and check the understanding and perception or, you know, to really get that patient and family buy-in in the hospital ICU setting?
2: Yeah, that is a that is a big multifaceted complex question. And I, th- I think I'll take it in reverse order if it suits or at least doesn't offend the masses here. But I think your concept of buy-in is actually priority number one. Um, if you're truly going to try to educate someone in the acute care or critical care environment, whether that's a patient or a family or both, or even another provider for that matter, you don't immediately have emotional salience, content, authority, or trust, and so you have to build those. You have to get buy-in. So, you know, my bias is that connection and trust are absolutely paramount if your goal is try to implement an effective strategy for learning, and I think again, you know, a hard lesson to learn is, and we don't, I think, learn enough about this in PT school. And Scott, I'm sure you have much to say about this in regards to how do you educate and teach adults, right? And I think we're so empowered as a profession, which I think is fantastic, that we just want to give information. You know, we want to give the lecture. We want to explain everything in detail. And that's, that is just not how, at least to my amateur knowledge of educating patients and adults, it's just not how it works. You you can't give people a lecture. You have to find where they're at, which I think is is number one. So, you have to get buy-in, which means you got to connect, you got to build some trust, you got to have some salience in the situation, but then you need to really figure out where is this person at? And when I say, where is this person at? I mean, what do they understand about what's going on? What do they hope and desire for, right? What are they hoping is going to happen What are they desiring is going to happen? And what are they expecting that's going to happen? And then you can use that to figure out, okay, where's the gaps? Where's the inconsistencies? Where's the things where I can insert myself, right? So, one might be, you know, the person or family uh, assumes that, okay, we have this medical treatment plan. And so, if if we get these medicines, uh, my mom's going to be better. And you, you kind of do on a little bit like, well, what does better mean to you? What are your goals? Like, well, we wanted to go home and be able to walk and go up the stairs and, and go to church with us and participate in these activities. And so, we, we really need to focus on the medical stuff right now. And we think that's going to take care of it. And so, you've identified their motivations, which is they want to get home and the patient wants to get home. She tells you this maybe as well. And the specific things they want to accomplish. But you realize there's a gap in understanding, which is, oh man, my goodness, we can treat your medical derangement your medical problem with the medications and the proper treatments and diagnosis, diagnostics, but you still may have physical functional problems, which is really what you're focused on. You're focused on wanting to do this. So, then you can go into that space and then educate right there about why what you're recommending is important. So, I think foundationally, you need to look at educational and and your words as any other intervention, which is you need to do an assessment, right? We don't just give interventions out blindly, right? Who comes into an outpatient clinic? Someone says, Oh, yeah, I've got some mid-thoracic pain. And the PT's goes, perfect, pop on up. Let's do in a nip right here. Right? And no PT does that. No PT in the right mind does that. They say, Oh, interesting. Well, we need to do an assessment here, figure out what my hypothesis of what's going on, and then target my intervention. And I think that helped me understand education in the amateurish way that I understand it in a better way. Is you need to assess the understanding and assumptions of who you're trying to educate and what their goals and motivations are so that you can pair your education to make it salient to them so that they can have buy-in to it, to want to understand and engage with that information. And I think a big one in our speech therapist did a, just a rip and project on our acute rehab unit around medications with this is, is this, um, and I do have Scott's insight on this, is this teach-back method of education where you're actually having the patient teach back or tell to you or show to you what you have tried to teach them because it immediately shows where you were effective and where you weren't and this was highly successful on our rehab unit for medication management because a lot of our patients on our rehab unit even if they come in for specific neurologic orthopedic burn trauma diagnoses end up having a lot of medical diagnoses with complicated medication regimen and this was just a fantastic way for them so i think that kind of general approach for me is the best way that I've had to kind of engage and I would say properly teach patients and families. And I'm not as familiar as I should be with both educational theory and any research that's on there about the best ways to teach families in this environment. But I think, you know, we don't often check understanding or perception. I think we just assume that we taught it, they should know it. And I hear this a lot from people and I don't think it's a mis... I don't hold them accountable. Like we don't learn a lot about teaching, people say, well, they just don't get it. and. I don't like that comment when you're talking about trying to interface with someone and change their behavior. We know that behavior change is damn hard. I mean, you, all three of us know it, right? We know we should eat better. We should exercise more. We should get more sleep. We know what the right things are and the wrong things are, and we can't even do it because behavior change and habits are extremely hard. And yet, we don't even try to check these with our patients. And for me, one of the best things that I've found is, tell me a little bit about what you understand of this or, or kind of what your perspective is on this. You know, tell tell me what you know about what's going on with you or your family member. That single question.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Kyle. I think uh, one of the O'Sullivans uses the question, if you were to go home today and talk to your significant other, what would you tell them about what you learned and then have them kind of repeat it back to you? And, and it's a great method because it does kind of review what they got from what you taught them. So I, I love that method.
2: Yeah, and it shows you like where you're not effective right away. I mean, there is nothing more humbling than hey, tell me what you understand about what we've been doing for the past three days. And you listen to the patient and family say something. And you're like, oh man, I was really, I was really swinging with my eyes closed there, right? Because um, you you know immediately, and and it really helps guide you along this path and i found that patients love it i mean i i really feel like they feel a connection with you as as a as a clinician but also with some to that buy in piece with edu- being an educator right because they can sense that you want to know what they know you want to know their perspective and that's what a lot of people are seeking is that validation and acknowledgement and so i think that really creates a lot of buy in but i i love that that's a really i'm going to start phrasing it that way i think that's That's great. Uh, I mean, I would be interested, Scott. You know, what obviously being kind of the expert in educational theory and, and method, based on obviously what I've talked about in acute care, but with your expertise in that realm, what would you see as a good way to interface with a population like this?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes down to. Well, pretty much anything. I mean, even your physical therapy skills, technique, and practice, you've just got to go into every situation with a bit of humility, right? And just be humble and just realize that you know, you have this knowledge, but you need to bring it down to whatever level or up to whatever level it needs to be at for that particular patient at that particular time. You do your best job you can to kind of educate a lot of metaphors, you know, a lot of similes and and just kind of phrasing things in different ways to try to relate and make it understandable. And then you've got to take a step back and say, all right, I did my job. I did the best I can. Now let's hear what you gathered from it. You know, it just, I just... I don't think that a we do enough of that but B it's it's also hard to kind of find the time to do that you know but if we're really going to truly be effective educators we've got to take that extra step
2: yeah I've heard someone say one time you know don't use the downtime in your interaction with a patient to talk about the weather like make it very purposeful like everything that you're doing and I, I think with a change of mindset your recommendations even though we're time crunched always all settings I, I think we can I think we can fit them in But it does, I I love this quote, because I think as, as, at least as a new PT, I was always eager to prove myself, right? I want to show that I'm the expert, whether I was talking to a nurse or a physician or a patient, and then we kind of end up over-talking instead of kind of slow playing the information. And I love this quote, it's attributed to Ward Chesterfield. And the quote is, never seem more learned than the people you are with. Wear your learning like a pocket watch and keep it hidden. Do not pull it out to count the hours, but give the time when you are asked. And I just I love that quote.
0: Nice man, I I think that's a fantastic quote, and I've actually never heard that one until now. But I I love that. I'm gonna definitely quote that in our thing. And and you know, and Kyle, granted, I realize that every patient is you know individualized and they learn different ways. But but I'm curious on a whole that you see which which patient populations or conditions do you see in the hospital in the ICU um, that are the most difficult to teach, and and what strategies have you been found. To overall be most effective at overcoming these difficulties?
2: Yeah, I think there are a handful of patient scenarios generally that are really hard to teach. And I, I think the first one is people who do not speak English. And, you know, obviously everyone has a right to proper interpretation, a live interpreter, phone interpretation, but even still, it can be so hard to ascertain what they're understanding and what their thoughts are just because, I mean, of the phrase, right? Lost in translation. And I've had interpreters tell me there's not a word for this. Like, I'll just try to describe it as best I can. So, I think people that don't speak English, and especially people who don't speak a common language, like, you know, they don't speak Spanish or German or French. You know, they speak uh, Tongan. They speak some very rare African language. I find it very, very hard to teach and assess my teaching in those patients and i I, you know i think that's probably a problem in healthcare writ large i think obviously the other one is patients who are either acutely or chronically or acutely unchronically cognitively impaired you know because you can take general learning and teaching theory but then when you start talking about people who have different forms of cognitive impairment that are driven by different etiologies It becomes more of a challenge to figure out what's the best approach to educate them. Should you try to educate them? If so, how? How are you going to teach them? And then I think the last two are patients who have really, really, really low health literacy and overall literacy can be very difficult to teach, especially if they are frustrated, distressed, have been wronged by the medical system, either personally or historically right? And it doesn't take a deep dive into the history of medicine and research to understand that there are some populations that are likely very suspicious of the medical system. And then lastly, patients with significant or severe psychological or psychiatric disorders. And really, the overcoming these difficulties, I wouldn't say that I have some good recommendations on effective effective strategies. For the patients who don't speak English, I just try to simplify everything. You know, I try to basically say, what are the main one, two, maybe three things that I need this patient or family to understand or I want to see what their understanding is. And I just really constrain what my scope is there. Patients who are cognitively impaired totally depends on what the etiology is there. And usually, honestly, and this is probably a cop out and a bit lazy, I pivot to my speech therapy colleagues and I'm like, hey, how should I talk to this person? How how are you educating them? You know, what will they be able to retain? What should I do? And I really use them as a crutch. And, you know, I'm very lucky in that I work with just some ripping, amazing speech language pathologists, and so they will field my questions, help me out. I am getting them consults all the time because I want to, I, I you know, I want their input, and so I end up yielding to them a lot for those patients. The patients with poor health literacy, I actually find really interesting because it's a really interesting scenario where you can use some of those tools we talked about before. Of hey, tell me what you know, tell me how you would explain this to your family member. I really like that question, and then you can try to simplify your explanations and your answers and and again focus on those main takeaway points patients who are frustrated or in distress are suspicious those patients i almost pivot away from education as we would normally think about it and i try to create therapeutic alliance and i try to teach through our interaction with each other and I, and i make it very informal and i try to illustrate through the things that we're doing you know for example if someone thinks may have an assumption that um, getting out of bed is going to damage me. I need to rest. That's the only way I'm going to get better. You know, you guys are always making us do stuff that we don't want to do. What kind of testing are you doing? You know, I'll strip all my education and all of my kind of therapeutic assumptions aside. and I'll say, hey, what do, what do you wish you could do? Would you, you want to maybe get out of bed? And we'd love to take your vital signs and maybe we'll change your sheets. We don't even have to do therapy today. That's my favorite go-to is to throw therapy under the bus while doing therapy. Like, you know, why don't we... You want to get over to this chair. Maybe we'll clean up for a minute, Uh, and and then try to open the door to what do they actually want? Psychiatric disorders, I think, are fascinating. We've had, I've had the opportunity to actually work with some patients with functional movement disorder, what's classically been called conversion disorder. You know, probably a dozen times in my career, and that's super fascinating as a psychological or psychiatric disorder. And for me, at least, what I find effective there is if you think about the systems in the ICF model, which we all learn. We don't. Dive deep enough into the psychological system and say, okay, that's the limiting factor. How can I target treatment, even if it's physical therapy treatment that addresses that problem? And the example that I always use is anxiety or other symptom burden, right? Well, the patient's heart rate's fine, their blood pressure's fine, their SPO2's fine. You know, why can't they walk further? They're just anxious. And we we have this way, and it's again, it's not like it's anyone's fault, but it's everyone's fault, that we flippantly dismiss. Symptoms and psychological issues. Like we would never dismiss physiologic issues. You know, like, oh, well, Mrs. Smith is tachycardic again. I wish she would just lower her heart rate. And no one ever says that right? because it's a ridiculous thing to say. But we will say all the time, and I've been guilty of it, is like, well, if they were just more motivated and engaged and not as anxious, they would do just fine. Well, we found out what the limiting factor is it's that anxiety. So let's target our education and our intervention to that. I know I've yielded a little bit off the question there for a bit, but I mean, I really think when it comes to teaching and finding the right strategy, you have to figure out what the problem is. And that's what the problem is in acute care, is you know, you have people who don't speak English, you have people who are cognitively impaired, really poor health literacy, very frustrated and don't want to engage, psychological issues. So if we break it down and bucket it and we can find what the contributory issue is to either not being able to learn as well, not being able to engage in an active learning process, not being able to accept learning or to learn, that will drive our strategy. And of course, that's remarkably complicated, right? We could teach an entire graduate program probably on that.
1: Yeah, for sure, Kyle. You know, We on this show are big fans of breaking down the silos uh, between all medical professions. Um, And I'd like to give a shout out to Dustin Jones here. But with your experience with collaborating with other healthcare providers, what lessons have you learned from other healthcare professions that our profession should really embrace?
2: That's a great question. And big Dustin Jones fan, buddy of mine. He's allowed me to be on his podcast quite graciously, uh, which I'm thankful for. And I, I I mean, first of all, I think this is this is a fantastic question. I mean, this should not only be an entire conversation or an entire podcast. I mean, this should be something that we talk about at our national conferences is, A, and you know, what's undercurrent in this question is not just the lessons that I've learned from interacting with other healthcare professions that we should embrace, but is, is essentially how do we collaborate? Because we should collaborate, right? And so before I can talk about the lessons that I've learned, I have to talk about how you collaborate. And how you collaborate is by understanding and precision in language. And this is not something that PTs are very good at. And if you listen to a physician team round and an intern says their blood pressure has been stable, it's an accurate statement. I can guarantee you that one of the higher level residents or the attending is going to say, give me the values. What do you mean, right? Because 200 over 100 for three days straight is stable, hasn't changed. Or oh, hey, we uh, we think this patient has sepsis. Well, what is sepsis? Tell me why you think they have it. So when you have an accountability for precision and uses in language, A, that makes collaboration easier because when Scott says X, I know what he's saying and he knows that I'm understanding what he's saying. PTs, I think, um, unfortunately, we're very colloquial in our language usage and we're not mathematical or scientific or you know, operationally defined as well as we could be. And then I'll give you an example and 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 do this with your colleagues. Go ask all the PTs you interact with for the next four weeks to define strength and, and see what they tell you. I, I think you're going to get a range of answers. Unfortunately, there's actually a mathematical physics equation for this. And I'm not saying that we need to be doing the physics on our whiteboards, but you should probably use the word right. And so, the lessons that I've learned from other professor professions is to build upon that is that discussion and dissent and disagreement are totally normal. And those should not be pejoratives, right? They should not be negative, inhibiting, nasty words. It should be what everything is founded on. Like, please, let's discuss why you're doing that. Oh, I don't agree with that. Oh, let's talk about that. And if you look at this just in rounds within a profession or how interdisciplinary rounds work normally, right? You have a physician team rounding on a patient. The bedside nurse is going to be there. Sometimes the charge nurse from the unit is going to be there. Maybe a respiratory therapist, maybe a pharmacist. And there are a lot of people not fighting, but giving different points of view, trying to consider those different points of view to come up with the best plan plan for the patient. And that's teamwork. And my sense, again, kind of going back to what my physician colleague who had done a few years at PT school brought up is that my sense is PTs are kind of lone rangers. We're very used to kind of doing our own thing and Johnny does it that way. I do it this way. Maybe that's okay. But I think that's a, that's an adolescent way to grow as a profession. If we're going to grow as a profession, we have to grow as a family. And when you're a well-running family, that doesn't mean everyone gets along all the time. Sometimes you have to have family meetings. Those are hard conversations. And I think, you know, To build upon that, the other thing that I've really learned is you have to collaborate and communicate with other professionals in order to grow. And that's a big lesson that I've learned. But that means that you have to understand and maybe use, quote unquote, their language. You have to understand their training and their pressures and their incentives and their knowledge, which means we got to step back, kind of peel off the blinders a little bit and attempt to see the larger picture. And that's both for the system and process of healthcare as a whole but it's also the individual roles and contributions of others. And that means that we can't make up our own language, that we need to learn the well-established language of medicine, of physics, of chemistry, of biology, and and not try to make up and use our own words within our realm. And kind of the four things that I've noticed is collaboration. Most other professions have a much richer culture and expectation of collaboration. They have a culture of accountability because of expectations, right? It's like, hey, man, like you didn't do that thing. We need to do that thing for this type of patient or this is our expectation of you. The third one is checklists for both training, onboarding and decision-making. And and people in healthcare writ large are a little bit uh, nervous about checklists because they think it takes away autonomy and critical thinking. But if you want to change your view on that, read the book Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawani. You'll totally change your mind about the power of checklists. And the last is like expectations and ownership. The other professions are like fairly clear about what they're expecting of each other and other professions, and and then the, and the ownership piece. Like, you know, I'm going to take ownership of that. It's a hard thing, or no one gets it, or no one's going to appreciate it. But you know, that's that's in my wheelhouse. I own that thing. So those for me are kind of the big the big themes that I've seen with other high level practicing professions and clinicians uh, within and around the hospital setting.
0: Awesome, Kyle. And, you know, with all that insight and all those great answers there, it's really got me thinking and kind of prompts me to kind of ask, a, you know, with those, with those things, of course, that we could take away from other that, those professions, how do you think we should best actually carry that out? Or how can we best integrate that in the hospital as physical therapists in the system to kind of really help facilitate steps toward achieving that?
2: It's all about building relationships, man. It's, it's about building relationships and building trust. And how to communicate professionally. And sometimes what that does is you want to be this professional and you forget that, man, you know what? Like it doesn't matter the setting, uh, it doesn't matter the unit, it doesn't matter who you're working with. We're all humans, right? I mean, the physician is a human just like you're a human. They got the same worries, fears, and desires that you do at a foundational level. You just have to literally look at building personal relationships that are professional. And what does that mean? You got to have conversations. You got to understand if that person's having a good day or a bad day. Are they busy or not busy? What's their viewpoint on what's going on? And when you start building those relationships, that opens the door to all this other stuff. And that for me is what really flipped my total development curve was instead of trying to take it all on myself, I need to learn this. I need to learn that. I need to know that. I need to be better at that. Is basically saying, damn, I've got the most qualified and expert team of interprofessionals that I could ever grab if I had to, why don't I just start talking to the respiratory therapist, ask them about their day. Oh man, are you just on this unit or how does it work for you? Hey man, I got a question for you about this oxygen delivery device, man. I don't really get it. Like, what do you think? I'm like trying to do this with this patient. These are my goals. Like, do you think I should do that or that? Like, what's your take? And as soon as you build those relationships, you start learning in this way that you learn like you do when you like go out with your friends. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was really lucky in that when I was an undergrad, uh, my close group of buddies, we all kind of majored in different things. So, I majored in neuroscience. My other best friend majored in molecular biology. I had a buddy who majored in economics, another friend who majored in mathematical economics, a buddy who majored in international relations, and a buddy who majored in media studies. So, you can like imagine what kind of like a, a lunchtime conversation was. Or so like, hey, let's go get out Let's go have a beer and and, hey, how was your week? What are you learning, right? There was no formality to that. But I can tell you like things that I learned from those conversations that were super profound. And you start to build those connections and that collaboration and it just kind of builds upon itself and it's not formal. And that's what gives it even more power because it's founded upon a relationship as opposed to a process. And those type of things are super sustainable because they continue to deepen as you understand each other and viewpoints and information more, but you build that trust. And I can't go back to it enough how important trust is in a hospital, in a critical care environment. Because acute care and critical care are team sports. The other person on the team has to trust that they know you're going to do the right thing and that you know what you're doing. And that takes a lot of time to develop, but man, is it worth it it because it pays dividends. And then the last little sprinkle there that I would say is, you know what? Be a team player, step back from your pressures and stresses, and try to do something in every patient professional interaction that makes someone else's life easier. If you do that, that collaboration and taking these steps to everything else I've talked about becomes infinitely easier. And the example that I use when I train my PTs and PTs that I work with, and novice PTs and students like when you go into a room, If you pack it in, you pack it out, that's a little hiking term, and you leave it better than you found it. When that nurse comes in, she better be like, oh, awesome, man, this room looks good. If the patient's out of bed, do the right thing, strip the sheets down, get the lines organized so the transfer back to bed is better. And that seems like it doesn't relate to all this other stuff, but that nurse is going to remember that. And that is going to give you a higher regard in their mind that's going to open the door to a relationship, to understanding, to collaboration, and eventually the ability for you to be able to learn from that person. So I hope that's somewhat cohesive, but that's kind of like my ethos of how we accomplish all of these idealistic things that we want to accomplish in this setting in regards to collaboration and learning from other professionals.
0: Yeah, Kyle, those are definitely some fantastic points there. And, you know, in terms of how to build that relationship with certain practitioners and other health providers that are also kind of treating our patients as well, what are some key do's and don'ts when kind of collaborating with a another healthcare provider regarding a patient status, you know, what would you recommend in that regard? Yeah, do's and don'ts. Great
2: question, man. Do's are definitely be clear and concise. I mean, that is always priority number number one in the hospital, especially if you're talking to physicians. I mean, these are guys who have checklists and to-do lists that are longer than anything you'd ever want to see, have so much stress on them, are not sleeping enough, have to answer to high level people in rounds all day, have to take calls from nurses, have to put in orders. I mean, these guys go through a system that is very hard. So you always want to be clear and concise. That is the number one do. The number one don't is you don't want to communicate in a way that is going to shut the person down. So I'll give an example. Hey man, I just saw the guy in 1057. Uh, I, think, I think our plan is all wrong. I mean right? You've immediately you've accused someone of something. You know, your plan, our plan is wrong. Anything you say after that doesn't matter. They're not going to listen to it. So that goes back to what I think is an important do. If you're communicating and collaborating within a professional, what are you concerned about? If you're bringing something new to someone, what are your concerns? Examination findings, subjective report, something you observed, something the family told you, What? Where are the, is the concern? Because we are all in this to help patients but we get burdened by the system and the pressures of what we're working in. So if you can bring it back to the patient and your concerns, there's immediate human element that, to that that deflates the conversation. Then you can make your recommendation, right? You know, like our, our instinct is always say, hey, I think we should do this. Give your concerns first. The other don't is don't make someone's life harder as best you can. Now, of course, many times I'm coming to a physician and I'm requesting something. Hey man, you know, I'm seeing this thing. I'm a little concerned about it. Do you think we maybe need to do this test or what's your thought on it? But as best as you can, try to take something off of someone's checklist or add some value to their situation, however that might be. So if you may, again, be clear and concise, make the recommendation and help them execute that, that is the best, best way to do it. And I think the last do is always come into those conversations as if that person is a part of your team. And I see this a lot with all professionals. We can get very adversarial, right? Oh, the residents don't understand this. The nurses don't get that. you know. And, and every profession says this about every other profession. It's a human thing. It's totally normal. It's tribalism. It causes a lot of conflict. And we see it in all facets of both modern and historic life. Very well researched. Come to it as a team member on a team. You were on a team to treat this patient. You were on a team to take care of each other, so that you can take care of the patient. So come as it like you're a team, man. Like if we're trying to a- accomplish this goal. What are you gonna? What are? How are we gonna talk about that? Hey, I'm a team member and this is my position. I'm the physical therapist, and you're the intern, the resident. Hey, uh, you know I want to talk to you about. You have a couple minutes just to talk about Mr. Smith in, in room 1059. Yeah. Hey, I'm you know I'm Kyle. I'm the physical therapist. Nice to meet you. I think we talked yesterday. Forgot your name? Oh, Doctor Smith. Nice to meet you, man. Yeah, you go by John. Cool. Uh, in any case, man, I just got done with him, and uh, you know, here are the things that I saw. There are no big deal, but man, I'm a little concerned about a couple of things that I noticed. I just want to get your take on it. Like, can you give me some give me some feedback of what you think about this? Like, you know, so I, I saw that um, and I, I I don't have good reason for this. Like, but he has this really focal knee extension and hip flexion weakness that I'm concerned about. And like it's consistent. I tested in a couple of different positions. I don't think it's cognitively related. He's got some he doesn't have any pain with it. You know, I don't know. To me, that looks like a femoral nerve compression issue. Like, do we have a scan of his leg? Like, do you think he has a retroperitoneal bleed or maybe a compression on there? Like, have you seen that? You know, and then you can have a dialogue. So that that to me is the foundation. And those are the things that at least I use to guide my interactions with providers. And admittedly. Get it wrong much of the time because it's super hard. But I think that's the way that makes sense to approach it.
1: Well, Kyle, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show tonight. You really opened my eyes to the world of uh, acute care and ICU settings. I I literally haven't done that probably ten years now since I was in school. So uh, it's it's really good to get uh, you know a true professional's insight on that. And you know, we like to ask all of our guests this final question at the end of every episode. Because we like to hear what everyone has to say on this, but if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, DPT or other healthcare provider related, what aspect would you change and how would you change it?
2: Man, you guys are ending with a haymaker there. That's a great question, man. I really appreciate that question. I know you asked for one answer. I'm going to give one answer to each part. And I think that's going to be kind of healthcare writ large and then maybe DPT, PT specifically. And I think for DPT, My observation is, I think we have more in common with surgeons than we'd like to admit. And and what I mean by that is, man, we are interventionalists. We like to do things. And our learning is too much founded upon things to do as opposed to process-oriented or theoretical grounding-oriented learning. And that makes us much more like technicians. So, when it comes to DPT student education and you hear this in the all graduations, you know, the classic quote is, you know, 10 years from now, 50% of what you've learned will be wrong. And that I think is actually wrong. I think what it probably is more accurately is 50% of what we taught you will be understood in a foundationally different way. Well, that in and of itself, I think if it's true or even remotely true is an argument that we shouldn't teach things and facts. We should teach how to ascertain and assess things and facts. And so if I could change one thing about DPT student education, I think it would be the ability to teach more formal thinking skills, critical thinking skills, and a scaffolding for how to assess arguments and literature and research and patience and then make decisions. Because that's what we do every single day is make decisions. If I had to change one thing writ large for healthcare education and probably just medicine is... And this is why physical therapists and any rehab professional are so powerful as we approach things from a different lens and a different layer of analysis than the rest of medicine, right? So, physicians especially, they work from physiology up, right? They they look at organ systems, they look at the physiology, and then they may work themselves up to the person. Because PTs are so clinically oriented, right? We don't take lab values, we don't take imaging as the foundation for our diagnostics. We kind of work from the whole of the person down into the physiology. And so, if I could change healthcare education writ large, I would flip that lens. And I would not say, hey, physician, you shouldn't be an expert in physiology. But I would say, orient your lens of physiology in the context of the person. Because everything that we're finding with healthcare that is so damn hard is psychosocial and behavior change and counseling and helping people understand and helping them make good decisions and adhere to a treatment plan and, and uh, mediate their distress and all of these things. So, I think as, as a healthcare system, if we could flip that lens and work from the person down into the physiology and the physiology back out, as opposed to only looking at the physiology, I think we can make a humongous change. So, that's my long-winded kind of two-pronged answer of what what I would like to change. How we would change it is a tougher question, but I think obviously CAP-T and educational requirements are pretty stringent, but I think what you say is, is you, you build in that people or that physical therapists are going to be taught foundationally about how to think, how to assess their own and others thinking, how to integrate knowledge. And you make that a, as much of a part of the education and the accreditation and the testing as do you know how to use an ultrasound? Do you know how to measure range of motion? Do you know what the spinal accessory nerve does? Do you know what the right ventricle does? You know? Do you know what a T-test is? So, you have to build it down into the ground floor. And that the same is true with uh, physician training. Uh, and even our training is we need to get other professionals in to train us about Looking at the whole human, we need psychologists and counselors to actually, and probably patients. I think patients can be great educators to teach us how complicated this endeavor is. And I think that's the thing that we all struggled with. Going back to your guys's very first episode, is you learn these things in buckets um, for good reason. Just like you learn chemistry, right? You learn the electron clouds and what where the electron might be, but in reality, it's just a it's just a probability map. And then you get out into the real world and you're like, wow, this is way more complicated. I don't know how to deal with this. But I think if we would flip the lens to the person level, foundationally, not giving up this other physiologic stuff, we could actually help remediate some of this burnout and frustration that people have because immediately they would understand how complicated it is because every single person is going to be a new complexity. So, that, that's that's my take. It's kind of a grand take and I don't know how feasible it is, but it is what it is.
0: No, Kyle, I think it provided some good insight. And I totally agree in terms of really trying to focus more on that biopsychosocial approach and integrating that, you know, and not discounting the physiologic and biomechanic stuff, but also realizing, you know, its limitations and really getting us to really be effective problem solvers in the real world. So I think that's that's a fantastic take there. And, you know, I've learned a ton today from this episode, and I'm sure others that are listening have as well. And, you know, Kyle, where can our listeners find you online and on social media?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter. My handle, which I'm actually considering changing, but that's okay, it'll all be linked, uh, is currently at dr__ridge__dpt. Underscore underscore Made that in 2010 before I realized characters were going to be an issue, but now everyone has 240, so we're all good. Uh, or 28? is it 280? You guys see that recently? They changed all Twitter uh, characters. So, everyone has the longer thing. So, maybe I'll lengthen it. Um, so, yeah, you can you can hit me up on Twitter there. Um, if you want to read past things that I've written, you can go to uh, ptthinktank.com. That's where that's where I blog at and when the authors there. So, you're always welcome to go there. So, those are probably the two best places to find and interact with me. So, I always encourage all listeners of anything I do or write, open to critique. Please dissent love the conversation. So, uh thank you both uh, again for the opportunity and the endeavor you're doing here. You know, have even listening to the first 7 minutes of your intro episode, you know, there's obviously a a nice ethos running through your guys's podcast endeavor here that I, I really respect and I think uh it's a noble enterprise and you guys are coming at it with the right the right frame of mind and the right approach and uh just wanted to give you guys a shout out for um what you're taking on because I th- I think it's really important. So, thank you guys so much.
0: No man. Well thank you for everything, man. Appreciate that. And you know, let's keep pushing each other forward. And you know, thanks for everything, Kyle. And you know, it's always a pleasure, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
1: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at H E T Podcast, on Instagram, H E T Podcast, on Facebook.